Colossians chapter 2. This week is part two from last week's message. If you weren't here, you want to get the CD. If you were here, you're right in step. We're just continuing on. Last week was the agony of victory part one. This is the agony of victory part two. And next week is going to be the agony of victory part three. So we're uh, trying to get through these verses, but the Lord is showing us so many wonderful things that we're not going to be in any hurry whatsoever. So we're looking at the same four verses that we did last week, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's read them. Paul writes and says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for all those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you want to instruct us in tonight. God, thank you for that wonderful truth that you love us exactly as we are. Lord, you just love us. It's not even dependent upon us. It's dependent upon you and your character and your incredible grace and mercy and love. But Lord, we also know that you are desiring and willing to instruct us, to challenge us, to bless us, to open up some treasures of wisdom and knowledge to us. Lord, do that tonight, that our lives would be transformed. Lord, we would invite you tonight to rattle our cages a little bit, to wake us up, to to just break us out of the status quo and the whole hum of life and even Christian life and just bring us into that radical place of selflessness, of being absorbed with the welfare for others, of being passionate about interceding for others and seeing others prosper in your kingdom and grow and be blessed. Lord, give us hearts after your own heart tonight. Deal with us in the depths of our beings. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would author my thoughts and my attitude and my words. You would speak to us wonderful things. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we spoke about the fact, as it says in verse 1, that Paul was struggling on behalf of these people that he had never seen. And you remember that, that the Greek word for that word struggle there or conflict in the King James is agon. Agon in the Greek and it's where we get our English word agony. Now in the English there's all these connotations uh, of negative things with agony. The idea of defeat and pain and suffering and all this stuff. But not so in the Bible here. The idea of agon has positive connotations. It's a picture of the athlete who is striving, he's contesting, he's working, he's laboring for a prize, for a good thing, for first place. And so he's working really hard and he's going after it with everything that he has, that struggle, that contest, that battle. And that's the word that Paul uses here when he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf and all those who haven't seen me. He's struggling in the spiritual realm. That is to say, praying, doing spiritual battle on behalf of people that he's never even seen before. And you'll remember that last week we talked about the Laodiceans, these people that he's speaking about. We learned a lot about them last week. And one of the things that we saw was that Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. 
And you remember what he said there in Revelation chapter 3 from last week? He said to them, I want you to be hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Hot or cold, hot or cold. The idea is there that both were useful in that day and age. Cold water was cool and refreshing and good for drinking. Hot water was, well, hot and on fire and good for cleaning and food preparation and all these other things. So as long as the Christian, so to speak, is hot or cold, he's in that place where he's useful in the hands of the Lord. They're both a positive thing. But when that water through its journey becomes tepid or lukewarm, it loses its usefulness. And so when we become contaminated with the things of the world, distracted by the world, we begin to lose our usefulness in the hands of God. Not that we're disqualified and He can never use us again, but the idea then is we've, we've got to uh, repent and get ourselves back in the place of, okay, Lord, I want to be fully in your will. I want to be useful for you. I want my life to count for your kingdom. And he said, if you become lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And we agreed last week that we don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Amen? He also said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 that they had become wealthy and they thought that they were in need of nothing. They had in the previous years accumulated material wealth and they thought everything's cool, we don't need anything. But the Lord said to them in Revelation chapter 3, but spiritually speaking, you are wretched, blind, naked, and poor. You see, their fluency has, had crept into their Christianity and it had brought some degree of compromise. And now instead of being spiritually fervent and spiritually wealthy, which is one of the things that Paul's praying for them here in our chapter, that they would attain to all the wealth of the full understanding of Christ Jesus. Instead of being spiritually wealthy, they went after the wealth of the world and they became spiritually bankrupt. And so the Lord in Revelation 3 just gives it straight to these Laodiceans. You're lukewarm, you're distracted with all these material things, and you've become spiritually bankrupt. Remember we spoke about last week, there's nothing wrong with material things. They, in and of themselves, are morally neutral. What is wrong, oftentimes, is our hearts. It's awesome to have cool stuff. But if your heart can't deal with it, then you've got to do some business with the Lord. And so he invited them to do business. He said, just repent, church in Laodicea. And you remember that we have said, and we said last week, that repentance is the most wonderful word. Because when we repent, the Lord restores us to communion. He doesn't make us work our way back and battle and struggle to get back with him. When we repent, the Lord goes, awesome, come here, right back here in my arms, right in this place of walking with me again. Remember what Peter said to the nation of Israel in Acts 3.19? Repent, therefore, that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. And so this idea of Paul struggling in prayer for these people, the amazing thing is he's never seen him, he's never visited him, he's never been there. Why would Paul do such a thing? Why would he expend so much spiritual energy on somebody he doesn't even know? How is it that he's so selfless? Three reasons we gave, we gave last week, two we covered, one we'll cover tonight. First, Paul had a tremendous love for God. Secondly, he had a tremendous love for God's truth. And third, he had an understanding of how prayer works. So, number one that we spoke of last week, he had an amazing love for God. That's because Paul experienced the love of God. 
Remember when he was knocked down on the road to Damascus? He was on his way to do what? He was on his way to kill some Christians on the road to Damascus. And the Lord met him there on the road, literally knocked him down and blinded him for a time. And Paul was converted. His name was Saul. Jesus changed his life. His name becomes Paul. His life is now useful in the hands of the Lord. He's experienced the forgiveness from a Christian killer to a Christian maker he's transformed. And he's kept himself in the place of walking, maintaining that position of just being in the fullness of the love and the blessings of the Lord. And as he has tangibly experienced the good things of God, he just goes, wow, God, you're so good. Lord, you're so kind. You're so awesome. You're wonderful. Lord, I love you. And that's that response. You know, we love him because he first loved us. And when we have ourselves in that place of following him, we experience that love and we say, oh, Lord, I love you. But then the outflow of that is always then that we begin to love people. We begin to love people as never before. Loving people always follows a sincere love of God. And it's because Paul loved the Lord that he was able to love people he had never even seen to such a degree that in his prison cell in Rome, where he's in tough circumstances, he's praying for their well-being. Loving people always flows out of loving God. This is a great litmus test in my life because sometimes, you know, I could get sort of a bad attitude with people. I'm, I'm just like you guys. I'm flesh and blood just like you. And, you know, I've got attitudes and I've got predispositions and I've got bad attitudes and moods and all these other things. And I could be kind of mean and nasty sometimes. I can hold a grudge. I mean, I'm just like you guys, you know, I'm, I'm no different. And sometimes I'll find myself where I'm just bummed out at a bunch of people. Man, so-and-so said that. I was so lame. I'm over that guy. And she really let me down and this guy's ripping me off. And man, he's not giving me what I deserve. And that's so lame. When I find myself in that place, a a check comes in my spirit from the Holy Spirit that says, Britt, something has gone awry in your relationship with the Lord. Because if you are abiding in loving the Lord on fire for the Lord, you wouldn't have so many problems with people. Because when you're in love with Jesus and your eyes are focused on him, people are just like, cool. You know what I mean? And that love covers a multitude of sins. So if you find yourself jealous, bitter, angry, bummed out, at odds with some people. You know what the real problem is? It's this vertical relationship. You need to give that, that some attention. You need to address that. You need to say, Lord, how can I press in more to you? Because what happens on the horizontal plane relationally is just a reflection of what's going on vertically. And if the vertical is ripping, then your relationship with people is gonna be cool. And the second reason we talked about last week that uh, Paul was able to agonize in prayer for people he didn't even know, was he had a tremendous love for God's truth. And the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea were threatened with some false theology, some false ideas about who Jesus was. And so Paul had heard about these. And Paul was so passionate for the truth, so passionate for the word of God, that he could not possibly stand seeing people in error. This ought to be something that marks the Christian. When there's error, we ought, error, excuse me, we ought to go, ah, oh, I can't stand that. Not that we don't like the person. I love the person. But that theological error, that wrong, perverted idea about God and his love and his kingdom, I'm not going to stand for that. You know what I mean? 
I love the truth of God, the Word of God too much. And so he agonized in prayer for them because Paul had a tremendous respect for, he valued, he loved truth, and he loved the Word of God. And it caused him to be willing to pray for people he had never even seen. Look what he prays for them in verse 2. The first thing that he prays is that their hearts may be encouraged. Never seen these people praying for them to have encouraged hearts. Now, people are all the same, and even Christians, sometimes we can get depressed, we can get bummed out, we can feel like the weight of the world is on us, we can just kind of lose our joy, and we don't feel that peace that surpasses comprehension, and we just get kind of, you know what I mean? Paul understood this, and so Paul's praying for these people that their hearts might be encouraged. Mind you, he's in prison, man. He's not in good circumstances. He's in jail for his faith and he's praying for someone else to be stoked. And he's just praying stuff I imagine like, oh Lord, just bless their hearts today. Lord, encourage their hearts. Um, Lord, have them come to you, all those who are weary and heavy laden. Give them rest, give them peace, Lord. Restore to them the joy of thy salvation. Be the lifter of their head. Lord, let your countenance shine upon them. Just bless them today with your peace and your presence. And he doesn't even know him. I hope that you, Christian, are praying for somebody else's heart to be encouraged. When our heart's sort of downcast, one of the best spiritual disciplines we could do is pray for others. That's in any circumstance because it gets our eyes off ourselves. You know, if you start to internalize and think about it and dwell on your situation, you could get pretty low. But if you go, you know what, forget about me. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, whatever. I'm going to pray for someone else. Start praying for some church in Africa, in Sudan, where Muslims are murdering Christians daily. Pray for that church over there to be encouraged by the Lord in their hearts, amen? Man, it'll change your outlook. The second thing that Paul prays for them is that their hearts might be knit together in love that their hearts would be knit together in love. Love is a primary thing. Love is the most important thing. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And we're told in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 that all Christian activity is vain and meaningless and futile without love. We're just a noisy gong. We're just doing a bunch of junk without love. Jesus said that we would be recognized as his true disciples by our love for one another. Not by our programs or our buildings or our Bible studies or our music or our outreaches, but we will be recognized as real Christians by our love for one another. Because that is true, the devil will always seek to attack Christians in the area of love and unity. Always, because he knows if he could destroy that, he can destroy our Christian witness in the world. You know what I mean? But, but when the world sees Christians just loving on each other, oh, bro, man, I just love you, brother. Just, oh, you're awesome. Like that, the world just goes, uh-oh. I don't know if I agree with those guys, but they know the Lord. You understand? Don't, don't, don't discount that. The Lord said, the God of the universe said, we'd be recognized by our love for one another. And so Christians, we need to cultivate love. 
And that's why Paul was praying that their hearts would be knit together in love. What a picture that is. Imagine just going chest to chest with someone and then just suturing your, your hearts together like that. Just, what a radical picture. Our hearts knit together, bound together in love, allowing love to cover a multitude of sins. Because there will be Christians in your life that offend you, that disappoint you, that may anger you or upset you or rip you off or just blatant be a jerk. And what are you going to do? Man, listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17, that we might be one even as he and the Father are one. So we've got to learn to let the love of God exude from our hearts for one another. And that's what Paul was praying for that church. You need to pray that for this church. Third thing he was praying for them was that they might attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. All the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Jesus. There is a wealth in understanding the deep things of the Lord. This phrase, true knowledge here, in the Greek it's the word epinosis. Gnosis is a normal Greek word for knowledge. This is epinosis. Here's what it means. Clear and exact knowledge. It means experiential participatory knowledge. It's the idea of just rolling up your sleeves and digging into Jesus. Epinosis, clear, exact, experiential, participatory knowledge. You don't just sort of have a passing, oh yeah, the Lord in church, that's great and everything. Yeah, sometimes I read my one-year Bible a little bit real quick. But, I mean, there's like digging in. Like, Lord, I want to know you. Lord, I want to experience. Lord, I want more of you. Lord, I'm grabbing onto you and I'm not letting go till the blessing comes. Lord, I'm getting alone in my closet and I've got my Bible and my notepad and my pen and my Holy Spirit. And I'm just waiting, Lord, speak to me. Just digging into the things of God. The Bible says that there's an amazing wealth to be had in that. Not material things but a greater wealth, a eternal wealth, a spiritual wealth that comes from that. And he says in verse 3 concerning Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look at the phraseology he uses, treasures, very valuable things, wisdom and knowledge. They are hidden, he says, in Christ Jesus, meaning it's not on the surface. It's not quickly or necessarily easily ascertained, but they're hidden in Christ Jesus. Again, that idea of digging into him. And in that is a promise of wealth and treasure. Believe it because it's in the word of God. You see, the world's going to tell you everything else. The world's going to say, don't waste your time on reading the Bible, meditating on the Lord, praying. There's so much more to do. You could be out making a name for yourself. You could be out making a buck. You could be developing this relationship and working that angle and networking here. Don't waste your time on these things. The world's going to tell you that 24-7. The Word of God is telling you tonight that there is lasting, true treasure and wealth and pressing into the things of God. So look at your priorities. Make sure that your life is balanced and that the things of the world don't outweigh your time with the Lord. You understand that? That's what Paul is praying for the church. And he's doing that because he has a love for God and a love for those deep truths and because he understands now the third point that we didn't get to last week. He understands the way prayer works. I want to share with you a few thoughts on prayer. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. 
Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 7 and 8. Jesus speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 7 and 8. He says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, as any non-Jew. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Yesterday on Saturday, I was hanging out with my family. Saturday is one of my family days. And uh, I was with my beautiful wife, Kate, my five-year-old boy, Isaiah, and my little 19-month-old, Daisy Love. And we were going on a bike ride. We love to go on family bike rides. And we've got this tandem bike with a baby seat on the back. And so I'm on the front of the tandem bike. Isaiah's in the middle and his feet don't even reach the pedals. He's just kind of clinging on there. And then little Daisy Love is on the back with his giant helmet on. And then my wife rides her pink bike with a basket on the front. And we were sitting around at the house. And you know how the winter times are here? They're warm. Like today was a beautiful day. Yesterday was a beautiful day. And it's actually hot out if you're just in direct sunlight and in one place. Like you could almost lay out and tan. You could almost bronze. It's so warm out if you don't move. But you know how it is in the winter here? That as soon as you start moving, like riding a bike or you're in the shade or there's a little breeze, it's like, ah, man, it's kind of cold. But if you don't move and you're in direct sunlight, it's warm. It's weird like that around here in the winter. And so we were all sitting around the house and it was hot and we hopped on the bikes and we've got t-shirts and shorts and flip-flops on and we start riding and we get just around the corner of the block, just half a block away and we all went, oh man, it's cold. And so we turned the bikes around, we went back to the house and my wife runs in to grab us all sweatshirts. She brings one out for all of us and she's going to put daisies on and I'm going to put Isaiah's on. And so I, I began to, it was a Channel Island sweatshirt with a little hood on it. And he put his little arms up like this. And he was already wearing a, a long sleeve little billabong cute little shirt thing. And I went to pull it over him. And you know what happens when you put like a long sleeve sweatshirt over a long sleeve shirt? That it pulls your sleeves back like that? And so I'm putting this thing on him and I'm wiggling it down on. And his head pops out of the hood. And when his head comes out, he's just going... And he's just got this sour, bummed out look on his face. He just, and I went, Isaiah, what's wrong? And he goes, (laughs) he's just pointing towards his arms and he couldn't even say what's wrong. And I go, what? And I said, hey, your your sleeves got pulled up your arm, didn't it? And I reach up his little sleeve under the sweatshirt and I reach way in there and I grab that other sleeve and I pull it all the way down. I do it on the other one. As I'm pulling the other one down, this scripture comes to mind. And I looked my boy in the eyes and I said, your father knows what you have need of before you ask. And I just pulled that. I'm glad that was so amusing. I could say it again if you like. Your father knows what you have need of before you ask, I said to him. But it was just a wonderful picture in my mind of the Lord to us. Amen. Thank you. Some of you are with me. Others of you are somewhere else. It's a wonderful picture of how he couldn't even verbalize it. He he didn't even exactly know the whole deal. But his father, in his incredible wisdom, knew, hey, man, your sleeves are pulled up and it's bumming you out. Let me help you out, son. It's the same thing with our Father, according to what Jesus says. He knows what we need 
before we even ask. And yet, the next verse says, pray then in this way, in verse 9. It doesn't say your father knows what you have need of, so don't worry about praying, just chill, he'll take care of everything. It doesn't say that. It says your father knows what you have need of, pray then in this way. And then he goes into the Lord's Prayer, and we'll talk about that another time. But the point is this, we are called to ask the Lord. Even though he knows what we need and he knows what is best, we are called to pray. That's very clear in the Bible. We see it here. We see it in James chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, You have not because you ask not. We must ask the Lord. We must come before the throne of grace in the time of need and ask the Lord for help. That is how he has designed it. It's somewhat of a mystery, but that's how it is. There is coming a time in the future where we won't have to ask the Lord. That's after his second coming during the millennial kingdom. We're told in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. There is coming a time when the Lord is here on the earth after the second coming in the millennial kingdom where we'll just think and the Lord goes, ha, I already knew it. And he just answers before we even ask. It's a different dispensation. It's a different time. God is working in a different way. But in this age, at this moment in history, the Bible is very clear, saints. We must ask the Lord. He has designed it so that we would pray. And one of the things he says about prayer here is don't use meaningless repetition in verse 7. He doesn't say don't use repetition at all. We'll talk about that next week. He says, don't use meaningless or vain repetition. Don't let it become routine for you. Don't just recite some rote prayer. Don't just recite something over and over and think that God's going to hear you because of that. That's not the way that it works. Prayer is a true, meaningful conversation with the Lord. Can you imagine me talking to my wife and she says, Hey, sweetheart, how was your day? My day was good. What would you do today? I did good things. Well, what do you want to do tonight? Some good stuff. If I just had these routine answers, my wife would flick me across the face and say, get together, guy. What are you doing? <laughs> Same thing with the Lord. So many people, they, they've been sold this false bill of religiosity. If I just repeat these words, if I say so many Hail Marys or Our Fathers or something else, if I just repeat them, the Lord's going to hear and respond. Meaningless vain repetition. What God wants is a meaningful, true relationship. And so he calls us to pray for him and pray with to him in a mindful, purposeful, engaged manner. There's this idea within Judaism and the Hebraic mindset and the word in Hebrew is kavanah. Kavanah. And it means literally to concentrate or to be intent. And in the Jewish mind, it's the minimum mindset that you need for prayer. If you don't have this mindset, you're not praying. You're just reading or reciting. But they say you've got to have this mindset of kavanah where you're actually concentrating on, intent on the Lord, where you know, I'm speaking to the God of the universe right now. I'm going to engage with the fullness of my being. 
And if you go to Israel with us next time, you'll see these Orthodox Jews and they have this little prayer rock that they do. And they rock back and forth. And part of that is because they know they're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the other part is I am totally mindful and absorbed in the fact that I'm praying to the Lord. I'm not just reading, I'm engaged with Him, with everything in my being, to be intent. I looked up that word intent in the American Oxford Dictionary, and it's got an incredible definition. It means to be attentive, absorbed, engrossed, fascinated, enthralled, wrapped, riveted, focused, earnest, concentrating, intense, studious, preoccupied, alert, watchful. Wow. Christians, if we knew how incredible it is that we could talk to God, we would pray like that. We would be so intent. We would be so intense. We'd be studious about it. We'd be occupied. We'd be wrapped and riveted and enthralled. Think about it. That the God of the universe, because what Jesus did on the cross for you and I, when we pray, he goes, yes, come on. Let me hear your voice. Revelation chapter five, verse eight says that Our prayers are as golden bowls full of incense before him. In other words, they're pleasing before him. The Lord enjoys to hear our voice. You know what I wait for in the morning? I get up before the sun does and before my family does, and I spend time with the Lord. And I truthfully can't wait until my kids wake up. I love to hear their voice. And my son Isaiah, same thing every week or every morning. From his bed, he yells, Daddy, Daddy. I need you. Oh, oh my gosh. When that little boy says, Daddy, I need you, I am up out of my chair from my desk, running into his room. I just can't wait to see him. I love to hear his voice. And I try to engage him in conversation. He's still half asleep. Hey, son, how you sleep? How you doing? I'm grabbing his face. Talk to me. I want to hear you. I just love that kid. Same thing with my little Daisy love. I can't wait. She's just 19 months and she also yells for daddy when she wakes up. Daddy! Daddy! And I run in there. It's incredible. Listen, your father in heaven loves to hear your voice in the morning. It says golden bowls full of incense before him. And I don't know that we always understand how incredible this is that the God of the universe who formed everything that we see, who holds all things together, loves to hear your voice invites you to speak to him and invites you to ask things of him. People, I think if we really had any idea of how incredible that is, we would pray with intent, with purpose. We'd be riveted and focused and earnest. And that's what Paul was when he was praying for the church. That idea again of agon, the agony of victory, prevailing prayer. That through prayer, he knew that amazing things would happen. And so he labored in prayer. He was intense and intent about it because you've got to be. You know why? Because prayer is, in many senses, engaging in the battle, right? There is a spiritual battle that's going on. If you don't know that, read the Bible a little bit. You'll learn very quickly. There's a spiritual battle going on, a battle that's happening in the spiritual realm. And we can, as Christians, sort of observe it seemingly from the sidelines, though never truly, but we can just put ourselves in the place of observer, see other people engaging, just kind of watch it. But the moment we get fed up enough, enough girls get ripped off, 
Enough kids get burned. Enough marriages break up. Enough people go down that road. As soon as we begin to get fed up and we say, wait, that's enough. I'm not having it. Lord, deliver that person. Lord, save that person. Lord, heal that marriage. Lord, fix that girl. The moment we begin to do that, boom, we just engaged in the battle. I mean, we are full on in it. And it's intense. It's gnarly. That's why we've got to have that attitude of struggling, contesting, striving, battling, laboring in prayer. That's why sometimes you don't want to pray. Have you ever noticed that? When you're in your best moments with the Lord, you're like, I fully want to pray. But when you're kind of in that cheesy Christian mode, you're like, oh, I just kind of want to chill. Because there's a labor involved in prayer sometimes because it is the pressing in to that battle. Let's see a perfect illustration of this from a true story in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. Please go there, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. What's going on here is that Daniel is praying. He's praying concerning the future of the nation Israel. Remember at this time, Israel is exiled in Babylon. And we learn in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, that Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. The same Jeremiah you have in your Bible. Daniel was reading that uh, about... Uh, 550 years before Christ. He was reading that same Jeremiah that you have in your Bible. And he came to chapter 29. And in chapter 29, the Lord says that Israel would be in exile in Babylon because of their disobedience for 70 years. When Daniel reads that, having been taken away in that exile from Jerusalem, he calculates and he says, wait a minute, 70 years, the Lord said? We've already been here 66 There's only four years left of our exile. And so he begins to pray and to fast and to seek the Lord, saying, Lord, what is the future of the nation going to be? And in Daniel chapter 9, he's repenting on behalf of the nation Israel, saying, Lord, this prophecy is coming true before my very eyes, like the days we live in. Lord, we're in the last days of our exile. What do you want us to do? And he's seeking the Lord. And we read in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 10, In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. Now, for three weeks, he's in an attitude of prayer. This idea of striving and agony. He's fasting. He's repenting on behalf of Israel for three weeks. Now, I want you to see what takes place here in the spiritual realm. Verse 12, an angel comes to him. Okay? Verse 12, it says, Then he said to me, the angel said to Daniel, Do not be afraid. He said that because anytime in Scripture somebody sees an angel, they're afraid because angels are super gnarly. I know that we think that they're fat little guys with wings. They're not. Read the Bible. They're gnarly. And so the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day, note that, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. Listen to what the angel says. From the first moment, from the first day, Daniel, that you started to pray, your words were heard and I have been sent by God in response to your prayer. That should encourage you so much. 
that the angel said, the angel who's in heaven, who witnesses, who sees, he says, as soon as you started to pray, your father in heaven heard you and he sent me immediately. But wait a minute. From the first day he started to pray, now it's been three weeks. What's going on? Angel, where have you been? And if you were sent the first day, why is it taking you three weeks to get here? Look in the next verse. He describes. It says in verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, this is speaking of a demonic authority, a demonic power or principality who had some sort of territorial thing with the area of Persia. This is the area where Daniel is when he's praying. And so when the angel is coming in response, a demon says, no way. I'm not going to let this prayer be answered. I'm not going to let this messenger get through to Daniel because he's praying for the future of the nation of Israel. We know that the enemy would love to destroy Israel. And so this prince over Persia engages this angel in spiritual battle for 21 days. I mean, sometimes when we say spiritual, we, we read that as not real. But that's wrong. The spiritual realm is the most real realm that there is. These things that are flesh, they're real, but they will pass away. But the spiritual is eternal. And so it's very real. Don't read that wrong. A very real battle begins to take place in the spiritual realm. For three weeks, there's this battle going on with this demonic power over Persia. Where's Persia, by the way? It's Iran. It's modern-day Iran, Persia is. Iranians are Persians. And what is the leader of Persia, of Iran, now saying about Israel? We want to wipe them off the map. We want to uh, extinguish them. We want to push them into the Mediterranean Sea. Very interesting that this demonic power wanted to stop the messenger from bringing the message about the future of Israel. And today we have leaders in Iran who are wanting to stop the future of Israel. Same spiritual battle going on. But so this messenger, angel, perhaps Gabriel, is engaged in this battle all the while that Daniel's praying. And what happens next? Look in the second part of verse 13. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes or chief angels, came to me to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. There's this battle going on, and the Lord says, all right, Michael, go help him. Now, anytime you read about Michael, the archangel in the Bible, you've got to understand he's a super gnarly dude. Michael is a military angel. He's the military commander on behalf of Israel in Israel's spiritual battles. He's a real deal. He's super nasty. And this guy's struggling with the prince of Persia for three weeks, and Michael comes and just, bam! And he just helps him. Glory, amen, praise the Lord. Look at that spiritual battle. Michael, the archangel, the Bible says, comes, and the result is in verse 14. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people, the nation of Israel, in the latter days, that is these days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. What do I want you to get from that story, from that historical account? I want you to understand that when you begin to pray, you engage in the spiritual realm and in the battle that's going on. And the Lord hears and the Lord responds. And if you're praying and praying and praying and praying and it's the right thing and it's a good thing and the answer from the Lord is not necessarily no, you need to keep persevering in prayer. Don't give up because when you pray, the battle is being waged and it will be won. Remember Moses 
when Israel was battling with the Amalekites and Aaron and Hur had to come and hold up his arms because he was praying. And as long as he was able to pray with his arms extended over that battle, the battle was being won. But when in weariness he began to drop his arms, Israel began to lose. And so Moses, or um, Aaron and Hur came and held up his arms. And as long as he was in that posture of intercession, the battle was being won. Don't grow weary in interceding and doing good, for in due time you shall reap the reward. What if Daniel had stopped praying after 12 days, 14 days, 16 days, 17 days, 19 days, 20 days? What if? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say so. I shouldn't say. But maybe if he stopped interceding for Israel at that point, the messenger with a message about Israel and the angelic military commander on behalf of Israel just would have gone back to heaven and said, well, they've they've stopped asking. They stopped interceding. The battle's over and just turned back. But Daniel persevered till the 21st day. And so the message was brought through. Listen to me. Are you praying for a situation? Are you praying for salvation for someone? For healing for someone? for some sort of breakthrough, for something to happen in our community, in your family, in our lives, in our world. Are you praying people don't give up? There's a spiritual battle that's going on and we've got to press in. Is it possible that the church in Laodicea backslid into a lukewarm state because Paul the apostle stopped praying for them? It's very possible. Why would I say that? Well, when Jesus says that they're in this lukewarm state, it's in the year uh, A.D. 90. When Paul the Apostle, or, or about that year, when Paul the Apostle was praying for them, it was about the year A.D. 60, when he was in prison in Rome and when he wrote this letter. Shortly after that, Paul the Apostle died. And so we could assume then that he stopped praying for the church in Laodicea. A few decades go by, and the very things that, pray, that Paul prayed for the, the, the reverse, the, the negative side of that happened. He prayed that they might be spiritually wealthy. They, they, they got into worldly wealth. You know what I mean? He prayed that they might be full on into the Lord and, and all the treasures that are in him. And they became lukewarm and lackadaisical. Is it possible that there is no other man or woman to begin to intercede for that church and so they just begin to backslide? Not that it removes them from responsibility, it doesn't. But it's that picture of strength through intercession that we just talked about with Moses and that we saw as the battles being waged in Daniel. Is it possible? Absolutely it's possible. We're told in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 18, that when um, Israel was backsliding and Israel was in a bad condition, that the Lord was expecting that someone, a man, would rise up and intercede for them. And he says there, I was astonished because I could find no man to intercede. He was astonished, excuse me, Isaiah 59, 16. Isaiah 59, 16. He was astonished because there was no one to intercede. The Lord wanted to do good things for Israel, but Israel was backsliding. And remember, we're in this incredible age where we've got to ask the Lord. And the Lord looks and says, come on, somebody ask me to do good. Somebody come before the throne of grace. Somebody stand in the gap and pray for these people and I will move. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. Come on, pray that I can heal the land. And he's astonished. He he can't believe it, so to speak, the Lord, that there is nobody to intercede or to stand in the gap. 
As long as Daniel was praying, that battle continued to be fought, and it was won. We've got to pray. We learn from the Old Testament and the New that God will bless Elijah and send rain on Israel, but Elijah had to pray for it. If the chosen nation is to prosper, Samuel had to plead for it. If the Jews were to be delivered, Daniel had to intercede. God was going to bless Paul and the nations were going to be converted through him, but Paul had to pray. And pray Paul did without ceasing. His epistles show that he expected nothing except by asking for it in prayer. There is this unavoidable, inescapable reality in the Bible that if we want to see God move in radical ways, we've got to pray. But people don't like that a lot because there's, there's some responsibility that comes with that, isn't there? There's some moral responsibility that comes with that. In other words, the idea that we're morally responsible to a certain degree for others. We want God to move in their life, pray for them. We are, to a degree, responsible for others. We're told in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. We are to bear one another's burdens. And the best way that we can do that is through prayer because, listen, prayer changes things. The Bible from beginning to end shows us that prayer changes things. We learn from Scripture that prayer can save a nation. Exodus 32, and the lack of prayer can destroy it. Ezekiel 22, we learn from Scripture that faith-filled prayer moves God to bless, and the lack of prayer moves God to curse. 2 Chronicles 30, we learn in Scripture that prayer can cause God to save cities that He had previously prophesied would be destroyed. Jeremiah 18 and Jonah 3, we learn in Scripture that prayer can add years to a person He had previously said would soon die. Isaiah chapter 38, the Lord tells the prophet Isaiah, go talk to King Hezekiah, his time is up, he's going to die. And Hezekiah says, I don't want to die. He says that he turns his back and he starts to pray. And the Lord says, I'll give you 15 more years. Prayer changes things. That is what the Bible teaches. The primary purpose of prayer as illustrated throughout Scripture is to change the way things are. And it's a false teaching to say prayer does not move God. Prayer simply changes you. Prayer does change us, but that is not the primary purpose of it. It sounds pious and wonderful to say, no, no, prayer doesn't move God. It just changes you and deals with your own heart. It sounds very religious and humble, but it is altogether unbiblical. When the Bible speaks about prayer, it is always in the context of situations and nations and relationships and persons and lives being changed by the power of God and in response to prayer. Ask and it will be given to you, Matthew 7. Matthew 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive it. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, it's an if-then statement, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. James 5, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. Therefore, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. I'm sorry to put this responsibility on you. It's not me, it's the Bible. 
But we have a responsibility to be in prayer that we can see lives transformed. In Mark chapter 9, a very distraught father brought his son to the disciples because his son was demonized. And he said to the disciples, I want you to cast this demon out of my son. And the disciples were unable to do it. Here is a boy that's demonized. He is tormented day and night. And the disciples couldn't deal with it. They had done it before. They'd seen the Lord deal it, do it. They had been sent out on little missionary trips. They had done it before in Mark chapter 6. They'd been given authority to do it in Mark chapter 3. But now in Mark chapter 9, they can't do it. They couldn't help this poor kid. And thankfully, the Lord comes. And the Lord casts out the demon. But then the disciples say, Lord, what, what happened? Why couldn't we do it? And he said, this kind only comes out by prayer. And some manuscripts add, and fasting. Not to teach that, well, disciples, if you had only prayed on the spot and then fasted on the spot, doesn't make sense, they'd be fasting for just a moment. It's not what it means. It means that they had to have been cultivating a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, that they were walking in the Spirit because they saw the value of prayer. They had a love for God, and so they had a love for people. They had a love for the truth, and so they wanted people set free from the lies of Satan. And so they walked in an attitude of prayer. And so when somebody needed help in the world, when kids were getting ripped off, they were in that place of power and authority and effectiveness, and people get set free. But because they weren't prayed up, they couldn't help this kid. It becomes very apparent from the Bible that the welfare of people, to a certain degree, depends on what we do or don't do in the spiritual realm with regards to prayer. That's why Paul was able to sit in a prison and agonize, pray, struggle for people he had never seen because he knew that truth. If somebody was about to be assaulted and they cried out for help, their well-being would depend on on what you did or didn't do. It is the same in the spiritual realm. When kids, when people are crying out for help in our community on this coastline, their well-being, to a degree, depends on what we do or fail to do in the spiritual realm. People, I think if we could grasp these biblical truths we would become a people that prays and we would see a community transformed to the glory of God and people set free. Amen? Lord, thank you for this incredible privilege and gift that is called prayer. We confess right now, Lord, that we don't understand it fully. It doesn't totally make sense to us and yet it's very clear that you've called us to pray that you've invited us, that you've gifted us with it. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would take our hearts and the areas in them that are stony and hard and selfish and that you would just break up that hard ground. Thank you that your word is like a hammer and a fire. Lord, let your word deal with our hearts by your Holy Spirit tonight. And purge from us selfishness that we might become selfless. That we would be passionate for someone other than ourselves. Lord, you've got to birth this in our hearts. And so do this work in us, Lord. That we would see you do radical, miraculous, powerful, life-transforming things.
and the world around us and through us. Lord, we desire more of you. So we've got to get rid of a bit of self. Help us, Lord. Show us where we need to repent, where we need to press in, how to pray, and how to receive prayer. You might see some radical transformation.